0: Well, good morning, Westmount, and we do welcome you to another Lord's Day. And I do trust that you have been blessed and encouraged so far in this service as we seek to fellowship and worship our great and awesome God of light. If the local church, this church, the body of Jesus Christ is going to develop any kind of beauty that God expects it to, and that God says is possible, that which will attract others to Jesus Christ, then we must commit to become the kind of church that Christ calls us to be. A church that is built on biblical Fellowship. In his book, Rediscovering Church, Bill Habels tells of the message of Dr. Gilbert, who said, The only kind of fellowship many know in the church is after service when the men stand around and ask each other superficial questions. Then they find their wives who are having similar conversations, and then they head home. But biblical fellowship, and listen to this, has the power to re, 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 um, revolutionize lives. The masks come off, conversations get deep, the heart gets vulnerable, accountability is invited, tenderness flows. Through this section that we will look at this morning in 1 John chapter 1, the Christian life is presented as fellowship. And this fellowship is both with God and with other believers. And the idea of this fellowship was introduced in 1 John 1 verse 3 That which we have seen and which we have heard we proclaim to you. So that you may have fellowship with us. So John introduces this idea of fellowship in the beginning of this book. And he expresses the purpose of the apostolic witness. And that is to have fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. Now this fellowship... The sharing in common spiritual life in the truest sense is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, as John rightly points out to us. The term, the word, the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, is used by John in 1 John four times. He uses it twice in verse 3 of chapter 1. He uses it in verse 6. And in verse 7. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it occurs sixteen times, and mainly by the Apostle Paul himself. It's translated communion or two principal our two principal ones, communion and fellowship, is our two principal translation of this word, this koinonia, that is talked about. And the word sometimes, sometimes emphasizes the idea of an association or close relationship with someone or something. However, the root meaning of John's word is not association but participation. It's not merely association with but participation, sharing in something with others. For example, in Philemon 6, it speaks of the participation in the faith. Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says he wants to participate in the suffering of Jesus Christ's death. Second Corinthians 8, verse 4, of the sharing in the relief of the saints. Second Corinthians 13, 14, of the participation the in the Holy Spirit. And in First Corinthians 10 16, participation in the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's more than just being affiliated and associated with oh I'm associated with West Mountain Bible Chapel, therefore I'm a part of the fellowship and I fellowship with them, just by association, no it 's more than that it 's deeper than that, and what we 're going to look at and expound on this morning is the idea of the formula for fellowship, the formula for fellowship, as we see it in the last few verses of first john chapter one let's go turn our bibles there and read verses five to ten. This message that we Heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Father God, I pray that you will use your word to speak to the hearts of your people. And again, Lord, if there's someone sitting in here that is not saved, that has not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, that will have absolutely no idea what true fellowship with Christ is and fellowship with the saints, I pray, Lord, that through Your word and the convicting power of your Holy Spirit that they will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ today. Lord, strengthen us and help us to grow in our walk with you and our walk with our fellow men, fellow believers. So that we will understand the true meaning of what it is to have fellowship with one another while fellowshipping with you. Take your words, Lord, and use them for your glory. And for your honor, for Christ's sake, amen. The formula for fellowship, and the first point I want to highlight is that this formula is found in the character of God. It's found in God's character, in God's nature, who God is. The character of God is necessarily determined determines the character of fellowship with him, or fellowshipping with him. Ramsey writes, if we lose sight of the ethical nature of God, we miss the truth on which all of Christianity is based and land in moral confusion. So if we miss who God is, is in his being, is what he's saying, we land on moral confusion and we miss what Christianity is all about. He goes on to say, the purity of the Christian corresponds with the purity of God. Without this moral kinship, he writes, there is no fellowship. There can be no fellowship. So John, therefore, prefaces this entire section with one profound declaration concerning the nature of God, concerning God and his being who he is. This then is the message that we have heard from him. Who is the him? Again, referring back to Christ. That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. John said this message concerning God, this which we have heard through Jesus Christ. Again, referring to the previous verses that we looked at some weeks ago. Is that God is light. He is light. And there's no darkness at all in him. John chapter 1 verse 18 said, No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him to you. John is saying this was the message that Jesus Christ brought to us. This is what we heard. This is what we saw in him. And this is what we're continuing to declare through to, um, to you today. That God is light. And John's point is this, that we know that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. Because it was communicated crystal clear, abundantly clear through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus made this clear that God is light. No darkness at all. An emphatic statement John is making here. And it conveys the thought that God is light essentially in his deed. He is perfect, unmixed light, unadulterated light, unmarred light. It means that there's absolutely no shadow of darkness at all in God. And I want you to note that John doesn't say God has light, that God possesses light. He says God is This is who he is in his being. Light is splendor in which all else is revealed. Why do we know that we are sinners? Because the light of God reveals that. And we'll get into that more as we work our way through these verses. But it reveals intellectual light is knowledge. Morally, light is purity. An emphatic statement. And John uses a double negative to place emphasis on the fact that you can't find darkness in God no matter how hard you try. No matter how hard you try, there's no darkness in him at all. One author puts it this way, darkness there is not in him, no, not in any way. Just a a repetition of how, just to emphasize the fact that God in his being is light. All and every kind of darkness is excluded from the nature of God. He is light, all light, only light. No darkness, not a speck. He is pure, infinitely wise. How much is summed up in these three sentences? God is spirit. God is light. God is love. And he comes to the conclusion of the matter in this section in verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we're lying. We are lying and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then I will note we have fellowship with one another. So there is that connectivity that runs through our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other. So John starts off with these if clauses uh, right throughout the end of this section. If we say or if you say, and one false assertion that We gather from this, or is implied in this text, and we see it in the world in which we live. And the Gnostics hung their hat on this, is that sin does not estrange us from God. And we see that. Do we not see that in the world? It doesn't matter how you live. You just try and do one good or two good or make a balance of some sort, and it outweighs. And I'm good with God. All world leads to heaven. It doesn't matter how immoral this human being might have lived, if their funeral or if they're being um, promoted or, or celebration of life, you see, oh, oh, he's in heaven or she's in heaven now, celebrating or meeting and holding hands with whomever. Sin does not estrange us from God is a false assertion that the Gnostics and so many, and I pray to God that you as believers, us as believers, don't hold to this false assertion that sin does not estrange us from God. Remember the Gnostics thought that the matter is all the body anything that is matter is all evil that's why they wanted to separate jesus and christ the two separate entities two separate beings cuz matter is evil but the soul is pure it is not has no sin whatsoever and that is all that matters their full focus is knowledge that's all their focus is on not fellowship With God, but John highlights and wants us to know that fellowship with God is the highest privilege in the Christian faith. That's the highest privilege. And you can't have a right relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ if that relationship doesn't exist with God, and vice versa. It's a mutual thing, folks. John is making this abundantly clear. So if we say that we do not sin, then we are making ourselves liars and we do not practice the truth. The word that is used is walk, which is a common word that is used in the New Testament, a metaphor for the life we live as believers, a pure life, a holy life, the whole manner of our Christian living, especially in Ephesians 4 verse 1. And the present tense in this verse emphasizes a habitual action. It's something that we're continually practicing. And again, we'll see more of this habitual practice and habitual action uh, as we go to make our way through. But this is a life that you choose to live. And you're choosing to walk in the darkness, but you're professing that you're in the light. You're choosing to walk in the darkness and you're saying, oh, I'm having this amazing fellowship with my God. John is saying that is absolute nonsense and that can't be true. You can't be living in the dark and saying you have association with darkness. They can't coexist, John is saying. Walking in the darkness signifies a disregard for or a defiance of what God has revealed in himself or revealed himself to be. One who walks in the darkness lives his or her life without reference to the revealed will of God. And either way, whether it's in defiance or living outside of the revealed will of God... To walk in the darkness is to live a life of sin. Simply put, there is no if, ends, or buts about that. If we are living like this, but then professing we're in the light, we're having fellowship, John said, You are a liar. You are a liar, and you do not practice the truth, the truth of God's word. Plummer comments, a life in moral darkness can no more have, and I love this quote, a life in moral darkness can no more have communion with God than a life in a coal pit can have communion with the sun. It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense, folks. And claiming to have fellowship with God while habitually practicing sin John says, makes us liars. And we most certainly are not in fellowship with God. We are not practicing the truth that is the word of God. We are not living according to the word of God if we're walking in darkness. But the contrast of this, there's a contrast to this, and it's found in verse 7. But if we walk, if you and I walk in the light, as he is in the light, what happens? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin and the implication there folks is that our habit our natural way of walking using the context of john here and ephesians as paul uses, it is practicing the truth living a life that is worthy of the call that god has called us to that we're living our lives according to the revealed will of god john says once we do that folks we will slip up We will stumble, we will falter, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses and continually cleanses us from all sins. And we will see how that cleansing comes in or what part we have to play in this. Not that that we have to do anything, but there's something that we need to do as believers when we do slip up, when we do stumble. And Jason emphatically went to the throne this morning confessing our sins, calling them by name, and we'll get into that. John was not naive, folks, to the fact that we're human beings. He knew within himself that he faltered, he slipped up. But he wasn't thinking that this was a habit, this was the norm. This was the natural way of living. It's a stumble, it's a slip-up, it's a falter. And when that happened, God, who is light, has the solution for that. As we saw a few weeks ago, if Jesus were not the God-man, the forgiveness of sins would be impossible. But because he was the Godman, because he is the Godman, and because he will forever be the Godman, his blood that was shed on the cross, because of that, forgiveness is available to us as believers. And to you who aren't saved, it's available to you as well. It's available to you. Walking in the light has two benefits, according to verse 7. We have fellowship with each other. That's a criteria, folks. We have fellowship with each other. And it makes sense because if if fellowship is participating, you can't be walking in the darkness and I'm walking in the light and we're participating. It doesn't happen. It cannot happen. It doesn't make any sense. So we have fellowship with each other. And, of course, the second one is the cleansing the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing from all sin. And this doesn't mean that we are completely free. We are impeccable the moment Jesus Christ forgives us. It does teach, however, that the blood of Jesus Christ is effective. It has the efficacy that extends to the whole Christian life. And again, this verb is in the present tense, which stresses a continuous action. Just like if you're continually walking in the light, that's a continuous action. The blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us. And isn't that comforting to know that as human beings, as believers who are striving for that prize and to live the life that God has called us to live, when we stumble, when we falter, We can go to a God whose blood will still cleanse us from that slip-up. It is found, folks, fellowship, the formula for fellowship is found in who God is, and that is because he is light. And the implication of that is we as believers, if we want that fellowship, we need to be walking in the light as he is walking in the light. And that in turn will see us having a good fellowship, that perfect fellowship with God. And then we'll have a fellowship with each other. That's how it works. Secondly, It's not only found in who God is in his nature, but it's fashioned in our confession. We don't often associate fellowship with confessing sins. But as I pointed out not too long ago, Jason started off in his prayer with confession. That was participation. I'm sure none of us, I hope, anyways, let me rephrase that, that none of us were sitting there and said, speak for yourself, brother. Speak for yourself. We're nodding our heads, amen, amen, because we know we slipped up this week. We know we slipped up this morning. But we don't often associate confessing sins as a part of fellowship, not only with God, but with each other as believers. What we see from these verses, verses 8 to 10, is this. There can be no fellowship with God and with other believers without confession of sins, without forgiveness of sins, and without cleansing from sins. So here is a second false assertion that many in our world. And even we see this in the text, sin does not exist as far as we are concerned. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, and what people such as these say, are they, they fail to understand or they fail to grasp, is that the closer you walk in the light, the more our sins will be exposed. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? I'm sure Isaiah was living a life that he thought, man, when I look at Israel and see how they're living, I'm not so bad after all. And then In the year Uzziah died, as he started out that text, he saw the Lord lofty, high, and lifted up. And he gave that description. And when he saw how righteous, how much the light of God shone bright in the heavenly sphere, when he saw how holy God is, what was Isaiah's conclusion? I'm good. Oh, wow. I I had it right all along. Isaiah said, woe is me. He condemned himself. He realized, man alive, I am a sinful human being. And I live among people who are similar. Folks, the closer you walk and the more we get into God's word and the more we know who God is is in his being, the more we realize how sinful you and I are. There's no escaping that. Hence why we need confession. The more we walk closer to the light, the more our sinfulness is exposed. And the lack of awareness of sin in one's life has serious, serious, dire effects. Such an assertion will lead ourselves astray. That's what John says. If we say there's no sin, sin doesn't exist, as far as I'm concerned, we're deceiving ourselves. And it's a consistent, and here John uses that language again, that present continuous action. We're continuously deceiving ourselves. We're living a life of self-deception. Deviation from the right path. By default. And the truth, John says, isn't in us. The truth is not in us. Truth may be all around us, truth may be slapping us in the face, truth may be acknowledged even by us. But when you and I, as believers, are human beings, claim sinlessness. It's not in you. That truth is not in you. It hasn't penetrated your soul. But here is the contrast is that when we acknowledge that we will falter, when we're not habitually sinning, deliberately violating God's law, John says there is a solution for that in verse 9. But if we confess our sins, so by default, we are, not, we are acknowledging that we are sinful beings. We have committed a violation against God's law. When we speak the same thing, that is what confession means. When we are agreeing with God, confession is not telling God something that he doesn't already know. We, we, we treat confession like that, like, you know what, I'm going to fess up. I'm going to let God know I did this awful thing. It's not telling God what he, what he doesn't already know. It's agreeing with God about the immoral immorality of our actions. That's what confession is. It's agreeing with God. God already knows. He sets his laws. So he knows, but we are now going to him in agreement that, yes, God, I messed up. I violated. I'm agreeing with you. We're saying the same thing about our sin as God says. To put it simply, confession is an AA meeting with God. Agreeing with God and admitting our guilt to God. It's agreeing with him and admitting our guilt to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all are, most of us are familiar with that song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Well, what John is saying here is not just throwing out a blank statement and say, God, I've sinned forgive me what john is saying if we're going to agree with god if we're going to admit we're going to have to name them one by one just like we're naming our blessings we're going to have to call them by name in our confession to god and he is faithful he's just to forgive us no matter how painful it is no matter how humiliating it is No matter how hard it is, we admit, we agree, without any cover coding that we have done this wrong in his sight. And we see the result of confession. John gives us two things, and I add a third. Our sins are pardoned. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. They're pardoned. And to cleanse us, they're cleansed. But I'll add a third, they're also forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so he cast our sins. Corrie Ten Boone made a profound statement. said, when God casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, he puts up an old fishing sign. And I love that they're pardoned, they're cleansed, they're forgotten. John mentions God's faithfulness and God's justice in connection with forgiveness and cleansing. He is faithful, has reference to his word. He is going to keep his word. If he says he's going to do this, then rest assured he is going to do it. And he's just, he's merciful to the penitent. And that justice is in reference to his dealings with his people. He forgives and cleanses in a way appropriate that is appropriate with his righteousness, with his righteous character. And Calvin says this, God indeed forgives freely. But in such a way that the facility of mercy does not become an enticement To live and to practice sin. He does forgive freely, but he doesn't do it so that we can go and do the same thing all over again. And again, and again, and again. And then we can grab Romans chapter 5, I I believe, and say, oh, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And forget that the very next chapter, Paul says, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, perish that thought, may it never enter your minds, is what Paul is saying. He forgives freely, but not with the idea that, okay, I can go and sin freely. He forgives so that we can live the life that he has called us to live. Here's another false assertion, the third false assertion that we see in this text if we say we have not sinned which is in connection to <clears throat> verse the previous verse verse 8 we make him a liar and his word is not in us this is really the climax of these false assertions and one could theoretically agree that sin affects fellowship with god As we see in verse 6. And one could agree that sin exists as a principle within our nature as we saw in verse 8. But one can deny that they have, he or she had committed any sin or any wrong. As we see in verse 10. And this ascending or descending, however you may look at its scale of error, is suggested also in the expression, we lie. We deceive ourselves. We make God a liar. So now we're saying God is lying because this is what he says in his word. This is why Jesus Christ came. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Barrett makes this remark. This is the final and most awful result of the denial of sin. Such denial makes God a liar because God's entire plan for redemption of man is based on the fact that humanity, mankind, have sinned. So, if sin be not the fundamental fact in man's present state or present condition, the gospel, he says, is irrelevant. Another author, Plummer, writes God's promise to forgive sin to the penitent would be a lie if there is no sin to be repented from. God's whole scheme of salvation assumes that all men, and this is an accurate assumption, that all men are sinful and are in need of redemption. Therefore, those who deny their sinfulness Charge God with deliberately framing a vast label on all humanity. Paul's words are very fitting in response to this. Heaven forbid. God must prove true, though every man be proved a liar. Folks, this kind of denial is what we saw in Romans chapter 1, the denial that Jason has been preaching on and taking us through these past couple weeks, that mankind is exchanging truth for lies, exchanging light for darkness, exchanging righteousness for unrighteousness, and living as though this is the right way of living this is the normal way of living this is the natural way of living and if you or anybody else dare say that i'm a sinner i'm gonna come at you with everything i have and i have the government to back me on this and i have the power and authority It doesn't matter your backing. It doesn't matter what government or political authority you have in your pocket. If all the world powers combine together and agree that the life that you're living is natural and normal, it does not matter. You're still a sinner because God's word says you are a sinner. And the life that you are living, the habitual practices that you're engaging are sinful actions. Then I say that unapologetically, you are a sinner, and your lifestyle is sinful point blank. go call the authorities because I'll still agree to what God says in his word, making him to be a liar, making God to be a liar, and his word to be a bunch of lies, but in the end. As Paul says, let every mouth be stopped and the entire world be found guilty before God. Westmount fellowship cannot happen without it being seen in who God is. And having established a right relationship with God, fellowship then permeates our entire beings. We want to participate with other believers. We want to participate in the things of God. We want to participate in what God is allowing us and has commanded us to participate in. And this kind of lifestyle, this, this participation then not only permeates our entire being, but it diffuses right throughout God's church. Not just locally, but globally. That, folks, is how fellowship happens. John says it starts when we see God for who he is, he's light, he's righteous, he's just, he's holy, he's truth. But he's also seen in us as we confess our sins, agreeing that, yes, God's law says this is a violation. I agree, and I'm admitting that to him. And we can start off having right relationship or right fellowship with one another. It's not just association. It's not just coming here and sitting down, listening to the songs and the sermon and then going home. It's participating in the things pertaining to God. And as we transition over into the Lord's table, I'll invite the servers to come up. And we'll explore a few passages, selected passages, and see why this fellowship that I'm talking about was possible. Something that has been echoed throughout eternity past. In Genesis chapter 22. And just verse 8, and this I entitled the sacrifice hinted at. And throughout the Old Testament, there's been hints and types or shadows of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ was going to make. We didn't know who this sacrifice was going to be, but there are hints of it going right back to Genesis 3.15. And the story we are very familiar with. Genesis 22. If you're not, I'll refresh your memory. It's the story where Abraham is called to make this hard choice. God promised him a son. God delivered on this promise. Surprise, surprise. And Abraham now was commanded by the same God who promised him this promised son go sacrifice your one and only son. And without hesitation, Abraham got up, got the things ready, and was heading to Mount Moriah. And Isaac, being a smart lad, looked around and was like, okay, Dad, I see the wood, and I see the things pertaining to the fire for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? What are you going to sacrifice? Because normally you would bring that as well. I'm, of course, adding some of my words into this story here. And I love Abraham's response. The ESV says, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. But I love the King James rendition of it. God will provide himself a sacrifice. And there's a hint right there. God will provide himself a sacrifice. We still don't know who the sacrifice is if we're just looking at the Old Testament text. But that's the sacrifice hinted at. And again, this is just one of multiple verses that we see a hint or a type or a shadow of the sacrifice of God. But then we jump over to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And normally around Easter time, the emphasis and the focus is on Isaiah 53. But we often miss Isaiah 52, especially the latter part of it verse 13 this is the servant described so the sacrifice was hinted at genesis 22 verse 8 the servant described isaiah 52 and 53 behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted and that's isaiah Just repeating himself to show that he is beyond high. He's the most high. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of man. folks, what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus Christ, again, we don't really know his name according to Isaiah 52. But because we know the full story, would be so severely beaten that his face will be unrecognizable with that blood teeming down his face, that crown of thorn. I can picture him just swollen and his body bruised and beaten and torn from the beating of the the Roman soldiers. And Isaiah said his semblance, his face, his figure, his visage, whatever version you're using, is unlike any other human being. He was that severely beaten. For us so that he sprinkled many nations kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand and then he goes into verse 53 or chapter 53 who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like the root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. This is a servant being described. Man of sorrows, acquitted with grief. And as one from whom men hid or hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the